The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, This is our third study in Matthew 24, and we're just kind of doing this occasionally, throwing it in here and there, and Eventually, we'll get through Matthew 24, but we've introduced the chapter in its context, and we've evaluated the disciples' questions. Now we want to begin to look at Yeshua's answers, and this is going to take several messages to get through. This morning, we want to look at verses 4 through 14. Now, as we begin to look at Yeshua's answer, we need to keep in mind the question. Seems like people forget the question when they get to the answer, you know. If you remember from our last study, the disciples asked Yeshua, As he sat at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they say, Tell us, when are these things going to happen? What things? Well, he just talked about the temple being destroyed. He talked about not one stone being left upon another. So they're saying, Well, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, we looked at the fact last time, The disciples didn't understand that Yeshua was leaving. So they were not asking, when are you going to return? The word coming here, the Greek word parousia, it means presence. It signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship, His glorious appearing in power. And, it said, the end of the age. This refers to the end of the Jewish age. The Old Covenant age. You know, some bad translations have the end of the world here. That's not a good translation at all. He's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the age, the Jewish age. Now, we could put the disciples' questions this way. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your presence in power and glory as Messiah and the end of the Jewish age? That's what they're asking. Now, amazingly, there is almost unanimity among commentators and scholars, that the disciples associated the fall of Jerusalem with the Lord's parousia and the end of the age. You understand that? They connect those things. They see that. Most of them say the disciples were wrong to make this connection. But they admit they viewed these events as happening simultaneously. Now, with their question in mind, we move to Yeshua's answer. He starts in verse 4. Yeshua answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in My name, saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. Alright, who is the them and the you here? It's the disciples. You know, we've got to hang on to that because it gets missed. You know, people read this and they read, Oh, yeah, me. You know, He answers us. Me, you didn't ask Him any questions. He's not talking to you. Okay, the disciples came to him privately and they said, Tell us, please keep this in mind as we move through this chapter. Yeshua is speaking to his disciples. First century, real people, whatever his answer means, it must have meaning to them. Any application that we make to ourselves from Scripture can only be made after we understand what it meant to the original audience. So we have to keep in mind the principle of original audience or audience relevance. Now, if you ask, why do I belabor this point? It's because so many people miss it. Not writing this to us. Walverd views Matthew 24, 1-14 as events of the church age, in other words, our age, leading up to the tribulation, which he views as yet future, He says these signs indicate that the end of the age is approaching in our time. And what we're going to find out is 4 through 14, these are not signs of the end. These are things that are going to happen before the end. The disciples asked a question and they said this Tell us. (laughs) Okay? They didn't say, Hey, can you tell the people in the 21st century that this stuff will apply to? Can you explain to them? They had no concept of that, okay? J. Stuart Russell in his book, The Parousia, 
says this on Matthew 24, 4-14. It is impossible to read this section and fail to perceive its distinct reference to the period between the Lord's crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem. Every word is spoken to the disciples. Every word. And to them alone. To imagine that the ye and the you in this address apply not to the disciples to whom Christ was speaking, but to some unknown and yet non-existent person in a far distant age is so preposterous a supposition as to not to deserve serious notice. It is preposterous, but so many people, you know, that's what they think. These are signs of the times, and you'll hear it all the time. Everything that happens is a sign of the time, right? <clears throat> See that no one leads you astray, he says. Because there's going to be many saying, I'm the Christ. So the Lord begins with a warning expecting His immediate parousia. He doesn't want them to be deceived by false Christ who would soon be appearing. He wants them to understand that He will be gone for what seems to them like a long time, 40 years, which is a generation biblically. Look what He says in Luke 19. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and then return. So, he's going to a far country to get a kingdom, then he's coming back. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So he's going to leave them to receive his kingdom, and in between his departure and the ascension, at the ascension and the second coming, these are the things that are going to be happening to them, the disciples. Verses 4-14, through this is going to happen to them. He says, first of all, there's going to be false messiahs. Luke puts it this way, 21.8. And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, the time is at hand, don't go after them. You see the phrase that Luke added there? He adds, the time is at hand. He's not talking about something that's going to take place hundreds or even thousands of years later. He is warning his disciples about something that was drawing very near in their time. Now, did such false messiahs arise and deceive many in the years before the destruction of Jerusalem? Yeah. We have a biblical and historical record of many such false messiahs. Acts 5.36 For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, 12 years after our Lord's death, Thutis persuaded a great number to follow him to the River Jordan, which he claimed would divide for them so they could walk across it. Well, that didn't happen. Okay? Josephus said, the land was overrun with magicians, seducers, and impostors who drew the people after them in multitudes into solitudes and deserts to see the signs and miracles which they promised to show by the power of God. So this is happening. Now at the time of Felix, who's mentioned in Acts 23-25, the country of the Jews was filled with impostors who Felix had put to death every day. That just kind of indicates the great number in those days. An Egyptian who pretended to be a prophet gathered 30,000 men, claiming that he would show how at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. Again, that didn't happen. Origen mentions a certain wonder worker, Dositheus, who claimed he was the Christ foretold by Moses. We see another of these false Christs in Acts. Acts 8, 9, and 10. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Now, according to Irenaeus, Simon claimed to be the Son of God and creator of angels. Jerome says that he claimed to be the Word of God, the Almighty, and Justin relates that he went to Rome and was, a company, was acclaimed as a god because of his magical powers. 
1 John 2.18 says, Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. Now notice how John, writing somewhere around AD 65, doesn't say it's the last days, but the last hour. And as they have heard from their Lord, many Antichrists would come. These are examples of the false messiahs of whom history says there was a great number and of whom Yeshua had prophesied that there would be many. Now, Griswell, in his work on the parables, calls attention to the remarkable fact that while many of these false messiahs appeared in the interval between the Lord's ascension and the Jewish war, there is evidence, there is no evidence, that anyone arose claiming this title before the Lord's ministry. So this is you know, not something that was just happening all the time. This happened after the Lord was dead in between His ascension and the second coming. So he also says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, but this must take place. But the end is not yet. Wars and rumors of wars. Listen, wars are not a sign of the end. Because look at what the end of the verse says. But the end is not yet. You're going to hear of wars. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean the end has come. This is what's going to happen to you guys. He will tell them later in the chapter that when they see a war, not hear one, they're to flee. Alright? Now, did the disciples hear of wars, rumors of wars? Yeah, they certainly did. There was wars in the tributaries of Rome and all over Palestine, Galilee, and Samaria in AD 66, preceding the destruction of Jerusalem. In the annals of Tacitus, who was a Roman, who wrote a history which covers the period prior to AD 70, we find expressions as these, disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthenians, the war in Britain, war in Armenia. Among the Jews, the times became turbulent. In Seleucia, 50,000 Jews were killed. There was an uprising against them in Alexandria. In a battle between the Jews and Syrians in Caesarea, 20,000 were killed. During these times, Caligula ordered his statue placed in the temple at Jerusalem. And the Jews refused to do this, and lived in constant fear that the emperor's armies would be sent to Palestine. This fear became so real that some of them didn't even bother to till their fields anymore. Time is short. We're not even going to be bothered with that kind of stuff. But though there would be wars and rumors of wars, Yeshua told the disciples, the end is not yet. See that you're not alarmed. This is going to happen. Alright? Now what end is He talking about? The end is not yet. Well, We've got to keep in mind their question, right? They wanted to know when the end of the Jewish age would come. You're coming in the end of the age. When's it going to happen? He says, this is not the end yet. Barnes says this, the end here referred to is the end of the Jewish economy, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what it's talking about. That's the end. So when that happens, guess what? The end has come. And that happened in AD 70. So wars and rumors of wars weren't signs of the end. To the contrary, the Lord wanted them to know that these were not signs of the end. None of these things would be a sign that would cause the disciples to flee to the mountains. He said nation would be fighting nation. For nation will arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, the word nation here is the Greek word ethnos, which means a race. Now, I talked to a man who used this verse to prove that we were living in the end times and the second coming would be soon. He said the word nations here is ethnos, and it is. And he said, just look at all the fighting between the ethnic groups today. The end is near. I'm like, oh my word. It's Jack Van Impey theology, you know? Everything is the end. All right? Now, there's several problems with this view. One of which is these things are not signs of the end. Okay, that's not what these are. He said, these things are going to happen. The end is not yet. They're not signs of the end. Also, Yeshua speaking to, to His disciples, this had to have relevance to them. 
Did they see nation rising against nation? Yeah, they did. Josephus says, at Caesarea in AD 59, the Jews and Syrians contended about the right to the city, and 20,000 Jews were slain. At Scythopolis, over 13,000 Jews were killed. Thousands were killed in other places, and at Alexandria, 50,000 were killed. At Damascus, 10,000 were killed in an hour's time. So Yeshua is speaking about the conflicts between Gentiles and Jews, which began to take place shortly after His time, and continued to the beginning of the great Jewish war. See, for some time previously, the Jews and the Gentiles had been living, for the most part, together. They were living in peace. But this period was distinguished by wars. Because now they're preaching the Gospel and the Jews don't like this, and so there's commotion, there's wars, there's fighting. He says there'll be famines. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. There was famines during that time. Again, you know, we have a famine today and people say, oh look, it's a sign of the time. No! He's talking to them. There was famines in their days. Agabus told of one in Acts 11.28. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Look at the parentheses. This took place in the days of Claudius. Okay? Okay, so it happened. This famine is mentioned by Tacitus, Suetonius, and Eusebius and is said to have been severe in Jerusalem. Josephus says that many people perished for want of food. Judea was especially hard hit by the famine. And the disciples sent aid to help out because of the famine. We see that in Acts 11.29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. That's a film of prophecy, by the way. Now Tacitus speaks of a failure of the crops and a famine consequent thereupon. Eusebius also mentions famines during this time in Rome, Judea, and Greece. Yes, there were famines in those years before the fall of Jerusalem. Now, it's not in the ESV, but some translations add the word pestilence. Young's it does here, and there will be pestilence. Now, pestilence is usually a result of a famine. You, know, you have famine, pestilence, they go hand in hand. It's caused by the famine. Suetonius wrote of pestilence at Rome in the days of Nero, which were so severe that within the space of one autumn, there died no less than 30,000 persons. Josephus recorded that pestilence raged in Babylon, or Babylonia in AD 40. Tacitus says of pestilence in Italy in AD 65. Yes, there were pestilence in the lifetime of the disciples in those years leading up to the destruction of the temple. He also said there would be earthquakes in various places. Now, did the disciples experience earthquakes in their lifetime? Yeah, they did. How many people have you, you know, every time there's an earthquake now, it, people are crying. It's a sign of the times. Tacitus mentions an earthquake at Rome. He wrote, Frequent earthquakes occurred by which many houses were thrown down, and twelve populous cities of Asia fell in ruins from an earthquake. Seneca, writing in the year 58 AD, said, How often have cities of Asia and Archaea fallen with one fatal shock. How many cities have been swallowed up in Syria? How many in Macedonia? How often has Cyprus been wasted by this calamity? How often has Paphos become a ruin? News has often been brought us of the demolition of whole cities at once. In 60 AD, Heropolis Colossae and Laodicea were overthrown by earthquakes. There were earthquakes in Crete, Apamea, Samaria, Miletus, Chios, Samos, Judea. Earthquakes in diverse places. And in spite of what Yeshua said, that the end is not yet, many take this passage out of context and they speak every time there's an earthquake. This is a sign of the times. Everything is a sign of the times, people think trying to show that this battle or this earthquake or this famine has to do with Christ's imminent return. <clears throat> All these things happen in the lifetime of the disciples, just like Yeshua said. I don't think there's secondary application that says, okay, it happened then, but it's going to happen again. And then again and again and again. No, it happened. 
They're not signs. As we look back at history, when has there been a time when there were not wars? We're not famines. We're not pestilence. We're not earthquakes. These things are not signs. Yeshua said to the disciples that these things are the beginning of sorrows. All these are about the beginning of the birth pains. Now, this phrase, beginning of the birth pains, is an image that's sometimes used in the Tanakh simply to express great pain. But it's often used of a woman in pain of childbirth. In Isaiah 13, 8, 26, 17, Jeremiah 4, 31, 6, 24, and Micah 4, 9, and 10, it's used almost as a special term for the birth pains of Messiah. In our passage, it speaks of the period of distress preceding the return of Christ in AD 70. Its, it's use here seems to be expressly chosen to denote the birth pains of a new world. Let's look at how Yeshua uses this phrase. Um, in 16.6, He says, A little while, and you will see Me no longer. Talking to His disciples, those in the upper room with Him. And again, a little while, and you will see Me. Now, the disciples question Him about this statement. And so He goes on and says, So some of His disciples said to one another, What is this that He says to us? A little while, and you will not see Me. And again, a little while, and you will see Me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does He mean by a little while? We do not know what He's talking about. Yeshua knew that many wanted to ask Him. So He said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see Me? And again, a little while and you will see Me? Well, Yeshua explains Himself then in verses 20-23. through 23. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it you. So he tells them the disciples would be sorrowful during the Lord's absence, but their sorrow would turn to joy at His return. And he says here, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. This is symbolic imagery of a woman suffering in childbirth, and this is used throughout the Tanakh. The travail of a woman in childbirth is the traditional biblical metaphor for the sufferings of the covenant people, which will precede the new messianic age. The Jews believe that just before the manifestation of the messianic kingdom, Israel would go through a period of intense suffering. William Barclay says, time was divided by the Jews into two great periods, this present age and the age to come. The present age is wholly bad. It's beyond all hope of human reformation. It can be mended only by the direct intervention of God. When God does intervene, the golden age, the age to come, will arrive. But in between the two ages, there will come the day of the Lord, which will be a time of terrible and fearful upheaval like the birth pains of a new age. So there's going to be these birth pains, this turmoil that brings in the kingdom. Now, in Micah 4, we're told this, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow into it. So Micah prophesies that God's kingdom is going to be established in the last days. Now let's drop down to verse 9 and look what he says. Now why do you cry around his there is no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So the idea of a woman in labor is used for the suffering that precedes the regathering of the scattered remnant and the coming of the Lord into His kingdom. This is the imagery that Yeshua uses in our text. Yeshua said 
This is the beginning of birth pains. They were not signs to the disciples, and they're not signs today. They didn't signal the end, but they stretched over that entire period between the Lord's ascension and His second coming. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation, they'll put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for My namesake. Who's going to be delivered up and killed? Okay, thank you, class. You got it, okay. You, 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 that's all disciples. That's who he's, that's the you he's talking to. Now, it's certainly true that all Christians who live a godly life are going to suffer persecution. Timothy talks about that. But he's speaking here to the disciples. Did the disciples experience tribulation and death? Yeah, they sure did. All you need to do is read the book of Acts. Now, the Bible Knowledge Commentary has this to say about verse 9 here. Jesus began His words with a time word, then. At the middle point of the seven-year period preceding Christ's second coming, great distress will begin to be experienced by Israel. So He's saying that Yeshua is talking about a time still future to us. When this is going to happen. So then is the time. where then, that's off in the future sometime. And he still sees it as future to us. So my question would be then, what did it mean to the disciples? So he's talking to them, but what he's saying to them means nothing to them. And they're like scratching their heads. Uh, are you talking to somebody else? Are you talking to us? Who does, what does this mean? Alright? Not only does he fail to take into account audience relevance, but he fails to compare the other Gospel accounts. Luke 21.12 says this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My namesake. Now notice here that Luke adds, before all this, showing that the persecutions are to start at the beginning of this period. The persecution of the disciples began immediately after the day of Pentecost. Mark writes, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Mark adds that they're going to be beaten in the synagogues. They're going to be brought before rulers and kings. All this was remarkably filled in the lives of the disciples. We know that Peter and John were imprisoned for preaching the Gospel. Acts 4.3 And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned for preaching the Gospel. And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So they get beat, they're put in stocks. Paul was brought before Galileo, Felix, and Agrippa. Stephen was stoned to death. James was killed by Herod. As soon as Paul began preaching, he began experiencing persecution. Paul is out persecuting the church, and he's doing fine, and then he switches sides, and he begins preaching the gospel, and now he's in trouble. Okay? Acts 9.23 When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Speaking of Paul. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. We've got to kill this guy. We can't put up with this guy. He's preaching the gospel. We've got to get rid of him. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. They were just constantly after Paul, wanting to put him to death. You know what's really cool? You're reading the book of Acts, and they're out there trying to kill Paul. And you know what God uses to save and protect Paul? The Roman government. The Roman government. He sends Paul away and he's got an armed guard, you know, 200 horses and spearmen, and go ahead and take Paul here. And I'm thinking, oh my word, the Jews are trying to kill him and God saying he's using Rome to protect Paul and they can't touch him. But they tried. He was beaten five times by the Jews. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. I cannot fathom that. To take a, a leather whip, often braided with uh, bone and, and lead, and just whip you 
39 times. They were allowed to do 40. They stopped at 39 because they didn't want to go over. Okay? Five times. That Can you imagine what his back looked like? You know, Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Yeshua. He wasn't joking. Okay? Three times I was beaten with rods. They take a bundle of rods and they beat you with them. Often with a sword in the rod, so when the rods hit you, the sword would slice. Three times. Once I was stoned. Now he's not talking about marijuana here, people. Okay, they're talking about they took rocks and they crushed them. All right. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. So Paul's been through the persecution. He was afflicted. Yeshua said the disciples would be afflicted, beaten, imprisoned. They'd be hated for His name's sake. They'd be killed. They'd be brought before counselors, rulers, and kings for a testimony. And they'd be given a mouth and wisdom which their adversaries couldn't dispute. Paul just kept right on going. The disciples experienced all of this before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, just like the Lord said they would. It was unmistakably fulfilled in every detail. Now, that God chose Paul, you know, shows that this is pretty incredible because this guy was not going to be stopped, okay? I don't care what you did to him. He had a mission. God called him. He's going to fulfill his mission. They couldn't dissuade him no matter what they did. Verse 10 says, And then many will fall away. They'll betray one another and hate one another. Why would they fall away? Because this great persecution, you know. Hey, they see Paul. You got beat five times. I'm not getting beat. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not involved. I don't know him, okay? Many apostatized from the faith. And Yeshua spoke of this apostasy in Matthew 13. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word immediately and receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately falls away. Now, I'm not going through that. See, in those days, many Christians were executed because other Christians turned them in to save themselves. I don't want to deal with that. I'll, you know, yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you up a name. Okay, You go get him. Verse 11, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. You know, this is not the same as verse 5, false messiahs. This is false prophets. I think he's referring to false teachers here. False teachers among the believers. Now, most likely referring to the Judaizing opponents of Paul. And Paul spoke of these in 2 Corinthians 11.13. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. In other words, they're coming in saying, I'm part of you, I'm with you, I'm along. we go right along, and they're trying to lead people astray. John speaks of these prophets in 1 John 4, 1. He says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. He's telling Christians what? Be discerning, okay? Don't believe everybody. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's a lot of false prophets. You got. So what do they check them by? The Bible, right? They got it. Now listen, they didn't have the canon like we do today. But we have it, so we don't have any excuse, okay? Someone comes along and says, well, this is what I think. Where's that in the Bible? We don't ask people those questions. We should. They're telling us something they believe. Where'd you get that from? Show me chapter and verse. Usually they shut up because, I don't know, it's in there somewhere. You, you believe things, you don't have a clue where it's at in the Bible, you know? We have to ask those questions. Hard questions, all right? Where's it at? Show me that. Because there's a lot of people teaching things that are not... They're false prophets. Alright, let's go back to Matthew. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's just, you know, it's, people are going to be turning away. And we see this in Revelation 2.4. The church of Ephesus, the Lord says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Because of the persecution. Because of the tribulation. Now the testimony of of Josephus shows the utter lawlessness of the Jewish society in the disciples' time. Verse 13 says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Boy, you talk about a misused, twisted, and distorted verse. Okay? There's a lot of debate 
about what this means. Some take this to mean, if you do not remain faithful to Christ to the point of death, you'll be lost. You will not be redeemed. Right? I can't buy that. Are the people losing their salvation here? you got to hang on, or you won't be saved. I can't hang on. And that makes our salvation a work, people. Endurance. You've got to endure. I believe that the Bible is very clear. Salvation is a gift of God. All right? A gift. You understand what a gift is? If it's a gift, there's no strings attached. Okay? You got that, right? No strings? Look at Romans 4 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Okay? He doesn't work, he doesn't do his efforts, but he believes. And his faith is what makes him righteous. Romans 11.6 But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. If you got to work for something, you earned it. You deserve it. If it's a gift, you don't deserve it. So if your boss gives you your paycheck and says, here, this is a gift. He's saying, you're not worth anything. You didn't earn this, okay? You work for something, you earn it. He goes, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's not grace if you have to earn it. If you have to work for it. And what we get by grace will never lose because of works. Right? Look what Paul says in Romans 8.30. And those whom He predestined, in eternity past, God chose some people. And then He called them. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. People, this is called the golden chain of salvation. It's unbroken. Everyone who is predestined was called. Everyone who is called is justified. Everyone who is justified is glorified. Nobody, nobody gets lost along the way. God says, why? Well, I, I chose that one, but somehow along the way he got lost. No. If he chooses them, he calls them. It's an irresistible call. If he calls them, he justifies them. If he justifies them, they're going to be glorified. There's nothing that get lost. So what's he saying in verse 13 then? You've got to endure to the end to be saved. The key here is understanding the word sozo. Save. We hear sozo, we hear save, and we think eternal redemption from God's wrath. That's not how any Jew would have thought of that word. Okay, That word, for the most part, signifies deliverance. Okay, Sozo is delivered, to be delivered. It means to deliver or protect. The Christians who did not endure, but turned back to Jerusalem. See, the Lord said, get out. You see the war, get out of here. Flee. They didn't listen. They turned back to Judaism. They died when Jerusalem fell. It's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. The one that gets out of there. The one who listens to me. Look at Luke 21.21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. This is counterintuitive, people. Jerusalem was a fortress. If you're surrounded by armies, what do you do? You run to the fort, right? Except this fort is going down, okay? So the Lord says, get out of it. Let those who are in the city depart. Let not those who, who are out in the country enter it. In other words, you hear them, don't run there. Go the opposite direction. Get out of there. Flee to the mountains. The believers who remained faithful, they fled. As the Lord told them to, and they saved their lives from the destruction of Jerusalem. Now there's a lot of people who say, well, none of the Christians were in Jerusalem when it fell. Really? Where did you get that from? So everybody was obedient to the Lord, right? Must have been a different day than ours, huh? They all obeyed. No, many didn't obey and they died. They weren't. They didn't save themselves, Okay? All right, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All right, so before he says the end is not yet. You're going to see all these things. It's not the end yet. But now he's saying then the end will come. So what has to happen before the end comes? The gospel has to be preached to the whole world. Now remember the disciples' question. Tell us. 
When will these things be? What will be the sign of coming? What's the sign of the end? He says, okay, when the gospel is preached, the end will come. That's when it comes. All right? So what end is he talking about here? Well, unless we take this verse clear out of its setting, the end in view here is the end or destruction which comes to Jerusalem and the temple ending the Jewish age. I mean, he says there's not one... He's looking at the temple. There's not one stone here that will not be thrown down. going to be totally destroyed. And they say, when will that happen? That's what he's talking about. And the end of the age. So it's all connected. And now he says, when the Gospels preach all the world, then the end will come. Did this happen? Well, we have seen that everything else took place in the lifetime of the disciples. But did this? Was the Gospel preached to all the world before A.D. 70? Okay, you think so? One of the most common beliefs among Christians is that the Gospel, when it's preached to all the world, Christ will return, the world will end. Alright? This is the theme verse of the Christian Broadcasting Network. Right down the street here. That's the thing. That's why they're preaching the Gospel. They want to bring the end. They're trying to fulfill this verse. And most believers would say that this verse has not been fulfilled. The Gospel has not yet been preached to all the world. Well, how do we know if it has? Well, Yeshua said the end would come once the Gospel was preached to all the world. And by the end, He meant the end of the age, the destruction of the temple, His parousia. And the end that is in view in this context is the end of Jerusalem, the end of the Old Covenant age. Since Jerusalem was destroyed, I think we can assume that the Gospel must have been preached to all the world before it was. Or, we have to believe that Yeshua was mistaken here. Oops. Just a little slip, right? We can, we can live with that, right? Everybody deserves to be wrong once in a while. No? So which one of those can you live with? That we're missing something up here, you know, the, either the Gospel being preached or Yeshua was wrong. Which was it? Uh... How do we find out if the gospel was preached in all the world before AD 70? Well, we can go to the Scriptures and we can see if the Scriptures tell us anything about that, give us any insight into the matter. Remember what we saw? Let's go back to verse 9. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Why were they hated? Because they were preaching the gospel. Why would the apostles be hated in all nations if they weren't preaching in all nations? They were hated by all nations because they were taking the Gospel. Paul declared that the Gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the Gospel, which has come to you. Alright, so he's talking about the Gospel. It came to you, you Colossians, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth. People, the Gospel can't be bearing fruit and increasing in the world if the world hasn't heard the Gospel preached. Alright? So Paul's saying in Colossians, well, that was, the Gospel's gone to the whole world. Yeshua said it would, He said it did. Look at Colossians 1.23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel, again, here, talking about the Gospel, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Oh, so in Matthew 24.14, the Greek word for preached is keruso. This Gospel of the Kingdom will be proclaimed. Keruso. It's in the future tense. Right? So the Lord's saying, this will happen. But in Colossians 1.23, the Gospel, which has been proclaimed. Now it's in the aorist tense, or the past tense. Yeshua said it would be. Paul said it has been. AD 62 is about when Colossians was written. So he says it's been preached. So... Lord said it would, Paul said it has. Now, commenting on Colossians, in this verse in Colossians, N.T. Wright says, whenever we date this letter, whenever we date it, 
Paul knew perfectly well when writing it that the vast majority of people in the known world in his day had not even heard of the name of Jesus. What then did he mean? And he goes into great contortions to try to explain this, okay? Because, well, it's difficult for them, okay? Because they, you know, to them, the end hasn't come, so obviously the gospel must not be preached. But Paul said it was preached, so Wright's going, oh, I don't know what he's doing here. He must, he must mean something else, okay? N.T. Wright and Heiser both. Heiser says the same thing. He stumbles all over this. Well, maybe it could, you know, they go into, it's, it's head-numbing to read the stuff they say about this and how they try to justify it you know, because it hasn't happened. But the end came in AD 70. That's the end he's talking about in context. So the gospel must have been preached by then, or Yeshua was wrong. See, they pushed the end off somewhere, so it's like, okay, it's way off. But that's the end he was talking about was Jerusalem, the temple, old covenant age, which they all know happened. They just don't see any significance in it, or not enough, I guess, to understand this. Paul said that the faith of the Romans was spoken of throughout the whole world. Okay? Romans 1.8 First, I thank my God, through Yeshua the Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, let's back up a little bit. Anybody catch... The reading that David did this morning and difference from this. Okay, very good. David, reading from Young, says the Roman world. Okay? Whereas the text just says, now that's, I think that's kind of adding to the text because that's not in there, but he's trying to explain. And see, interpreters do this. Well, I think it means this. So they, But I think that's somewhat helpful, okay? The gospel hadn't gone to every person that ever lived but had gone to the known world, the Roman world, the world at their time that they were concerned with. All right, And Paul said the Gospel had been known, made known to all nations. These different nations within the Roman kingdom, the Roman world, had heard the Gospel. Look what he says um, in Romans 16. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to My Gospel, and the preaching of Yeshua the Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now we know that Paul traveled through Asia Minor, Greece, Crete. He was in Italy. He made it to Spain, most people believe, in Gaul. During this time, the other apostles weren't sitting around playing checkers. They were out doing stuff too. And there's much proof that within 30 years after the prophecy was spoken, churches were established in all these regions. The Gospel had gone out. That's what Yeshua was talking about. He didn't mean every single person from here on out will hear, then the end will come. And that's how most people interpret this. That's why the end is still future. Everybody hasn't heard. There's tribes in Africa. You know, they haven't heard the Gospel yet. And you go in there to try to preach it to them and they eat you. You know, so that doesn't work too well. So, you know, but that's what they're thinking. Everybody has to hear. That's not the idea of world here. It's every single individual. The known world of that time, the gospel was carried. Chrysostom, writing in 375 AD, wrote this. Therefore he added, moreover, and this gospel shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come of the downfall of Jerusalem. So he's saying, well, the end, he's talking about Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's been destroyed now. All right. For in proof that he meant this, and that before the taking of Jerusalem, the gospel was preached, hear what Paul saith. Their sow went into all the earth, and again the gospel which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, which also is a very great sign of Christ's power, that in twenty or the most thirty years, the word had reached the ends of the world. After this, therefore, saith he, shall come the end of Jerusalem. For that he intimates, this was manifested by what follows. So here he is in 325 saying, hey, yeah, this happened. Okay? Just like the Lord said, this gospel was preached because he's talking about Jerusalem's fall. And that's what happened. How about Eusebius? 
325, he writes, Thus, under the influence of heavenly power and with the divine cooperation, the doctrine of the Savior, like the rays of the sun, quickly illuminated the whole world and straightway in accordance with the divine scriptures. The voice of the inspired evangelist and apostle went forth through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So many today would say the gospel has not been preached to all the world. And Matthew 24 still has to be fulfilled because they're thinking of the world as every single individual, every little tribe, every little group that's somewhere hidden somewhere has to go to them. But the Bible says that all nations of the world heard the gospel preached before AD 70. So who are we going to believe? Okay? That's the thing. We have to understand the context here. Then the end will come. What end? The end of the world? No, no one's talking about the end of the world. We're talking about the end of Jerusalem, which signifies the end of the old covenant, which consummates the new covenant. It's a huge change, people. And there's a lot of, there's also a cosmic battle going on this whole time, all right? And that cosmic battle also comes to an end as we move into the new covenant. So we got to learn to believe the scriptures, and maybe not everybody who has an opinion about something. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, this is Christ talking, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then, the end will come. So he's been talking to him. No, this is not the end. No, don't. When you hear wars, that's not the end. You hear famines, that's not the end. The end's not coming until the gospel's preached. And the end is the end of Jerusalem. Now, to deny that Matthew 24 14 has been filled is to deny the clear statements of God's holy word. It's to call God, it's to call Paul a liar. Paul said it was fulfilled. He knew what Christ said, he knew that, and he's saying, listen, it happened. Then, the end will come. The end of what? The end of what they're talking about. The temple. The age. He's not saying the world will end when everybody's heard the gospel or that the Christian age will end. The Christian age is an everlasting age. It doesn't have an end. You know what else it doesn't have? Last days. There's no last days of something that doesn't end. Okay? There's last days of things that end. Yeshua very clearly tells His disciples that before the temple would be destroyed, and before his parousia and the end of the age, the gospel must be preached to the whole world, and it was. The temple was destroyed. He arrived in full glory, and the old covenant age was brought to an end, and we now dwell in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this does not mean, as some want to say, that the gospel doesn't have to be preached anymore. It was preached to the whole world, it's done. That's over. It's all finished, right? It was to be preached forever and always. Notice what the parable of the wedding feast here. And again, Yeshua spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, and they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So the king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murders and burned their city. Uh, who's he talking about? Choose. He, he destroyed, he killed them, he burned up their city. Now, notice what he says to his servants after the city has been destroyed. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Go get some more. Go get the people. See, people, we today dwell in the New Jerusalem in the very presence of God. And the invitation is still going out today. The Gospel still goes out. Notice the invitation that goes forth from the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears... Who's that? Does that apply to us, you think? Are we the ones who hear? We've heard it. 
We know the gospel. Let the one who hears say, come. Hey, come on. Let the one who is thirsty. Now look at people. If they're not thirsty, they're not coming. Right? I'm not, I don't care about that gospel. That's nonsense. I don't want to hear that. That's the main, no, but if they're thirsty, they can come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Believers, I believe our calling today is still to carry the good news, the gospel message. And listen, people are still coming today. Young people are coming. Older people are coming. And it's amazing. And we don't know who God has chosen, who God hasn't chosen. So what do we do? We carry the gospel to everybody. You know? And I think, you know, my perspective is I share the gospel with people who are interested. You know what I mean? I mean, if they're trying to get away from you, don't chase them and beat them over the head with the gospel. Just shut up. They don't want to hear. If they want to hear, share with them. Just be sensitive. A lot of times they have some questions. They don't want a whole dump load knocked on them, okay? Answer their questions. See if they're open to go on. But when they're open, I mean, it's incredible. It's so cool, you know? And I remember, I get so excited when you share the gospel and someone comes to Christ. I remember one time thinking, I don't get any commission. Why am I so excited? You know, but it's just—it's cool to be part of the kingdom of God and to be sharing this and watching. You know, that God would use us to bring people into His kingdom. But we got to share. But not all do we have to share. We have to live it. Because if you're not living it and you're preaching it, they're going to be like, "I don't want what you're selling. It doesn't do anything for you. Why would I want it?" That's why it's important that we are people that God called us to be, that we love those around us, we care for others, we're doing you know, what we should be doing and living the way we should be living, and then we proclaim the Gospel and people are excited because they know there's something different. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I pray that You'd teach us to read Your Word through the eyes of those who it's written to. Lord, so often we want to read it like a newspaper, like it applies to us. Give us wisdom, Father. May we be discerning. May we strive to understand what Your Word says and to who it was said to, and then apply it to our lives. Lord, I thank You that Your promise has been fulfilled. The Gospel has gone to all the world. The end has come. The end of that old covenant age, we now dwell in the presence of our God forever and always. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Translation is a super translation because it defines the world rather than this great big ball that we're on Right, Young's. Yeah, he tries to define. I mean, let's let's bring it down a little. He's not talk because that, that's I I I, <laughs> I I I I I think Young's is right. I think that you know that's the concept. It's the Roman world, the world they lived in, the world they knew. Okay, he's not talking about the. Well, okay, good. <laughs> That's a good question, right. Well, again, I don't care who it is, when men are translating the Bible, they have prejudices. They have views that there's a, well, it's obvious. So they're helping us out, okay? They think. And, and I have not read a translation that I'm like, ah, it's perfect in every way. No. You know, I think Young does a very good job, but again, he's saying, well, the world doesn't mean you know, he's trying to help us out. That's basically what he's doing. Okay, so yeah, literal with a little help here and there. <laughs> Gary? Um, I don't remember the quote now, but one by N.T. Wright where um, he said, the world, not everyone in the world has heard the name of Jesus. Well, he was partially right because the name would not have been used. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the same thing. Did you really? Yeah, That's funny. I was like, yeah. Nobody had hey. Yeah. <laughs> no one heard that name, did they? Back then, that name was uh, not something anybody knew. Yeah, that's right. So the gospel can be preached to the whole world. That's right. Everybody. Uh, Gary Cole writes and says that Gennady said thank you for your prayers and your support of our ministry in the war zone. 
that's uh, you know we support him on a monthly basis and pray for him and you know he's just doing a tremendous work taking the gospel. You know he's and folks that's what I was talking about. He's taking these people they're starving, and he's not going to them and saying, "Hey, you want to understand the gospel? You know here it is. You know be warmed and filled." No, he's taking them food. He's taking them supplies, and then he's sharing with them the love of Christ. Incredible, beautiful. David. Disciples have relayed these saints to Paul after his salvation, or was that something that was revealed to him by Christ Himself? As far as what we were discussing today about the tribulations and the end, I mean, is that something Paul would, would have been familiar with since he, I mean, because he wasn't on the mount. <laughs> Did God give him a right? Okay, he didn't hear it. Yeah, I think Paul was probably very familiar with the teachings of Christ. You know, I, I just. You know, I got an, I mean, it had such an impact, especially after he became a Christian. I mean, he knew the scriptures inside and out before. And so now he's putting it together and all the prophecies start to add up and he's hearing the things about, I mean, that was a, an oral tradition there. Things weren't written down, they were passed on by word of mouth. So I'm sure that Paul was very familiar of the sayings of Christ and the things he did. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta think that he understood that. the answers to their questions, you know, because he was opposing them. So he could form his own his own gospel, you know. Derek? Did it put you on the spot? Um, Me? Yeah. You said um, you haven't come across any translator that doesn't put their own spin on yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tell you that. You know, that's the whole thing. When I'm studying, I I come to the text with biases. I come to the text with preconceived ideas. I come to the text with you know this is what I want it to say, and I got to fight all that every week. And I do my best. I mean, I cry out to God over the text, Lord. Please don't let me make this say what I want it, what's convenient to say, or what agrees with what I've said before. I want to try to understand, and I know, listen, you know it, I know it, I'm human, I make mistakes, I'm doing the best I can to try to understand this, I try, you know, to dig into it as deep and understand the language and the cultures, but we all have our biases, you know, and, and people are always writing me, you know, you, I wish you would study this and see that, and I'm like, you know, I, I got a letter last week, you know, I wish you would do some more research and study and see what the Bible teaches universalism. And I wrote back and said, you know, I guess you assume I've never studied it. I have studied it. I disagree with it, okay? And, you know, there's sometimes people write me and there are things that I haven't considered. Like a guy writes me and he says, well, you said John was the beloved disciple. Where'd you get that from? And I'm like, everybody knows that. And then he gives me some other stuff, so I start digging and I'm like, wow, John is not. It's Lazarus, you know? So you learn, you know, but I, I do take what people have to say you know, but some people are saying, well, you, you know, you need to really look at this because Christ wasn't God. And I'm like, trash. You know, I mean, there's things I've studied. There's things I'm totally committed to. You know, people want to argue about the Trinity. When someone wants to argue about the Trinity, you don't know the Old Testament. Okay? Because if you understood that, the Jews understood a Trinity back then. Okay? This is not something Christians came up with. They understood the plurality of the Godhead. And so these certain things that I've invested a lot of time in, no, they're not open for debate. Now, if something comes up and blows that away, but they'd have to put some new verses in the Bible because I've read it cover to cover for 20-some years, okay? Every year. Sometimes a couple times a year. Yeah, that's one of those new verses that gets added, you know. That's why you got to be careful of the translations you use. They'll stick some new verse, and you're like, really, where'd that verse come? I see things new all the time, don't get me wrong. When I'm reading them, I'm like, wow, I didn't... I never thought, I never remember reading that, you know, it's like, jumps out at you, because you do learn things, alright, but I'm just saying that there's certain things you believe, and there's other things you're like, open, like, well, let's, let's study this, let's look at this, let's dig into this, but yes, again, who doesn't have biases, you know, who doesn't have a view made up, and, you know, we all want to support our view, and that's one of my prayers always, is God, I don't want to support what I believe, I want to support what you teach, that's hard. Because I want them to teach what I believe. <laughs> you know? 
But again, certain things, I've been down this road so many times, you know, people are always attacking me on Calvinism. I was an Arminian for many, many, many years. I hated Calvinists. I thought they were despicable. I thought they were ignorant. And the very thing I hated, I became. Because the Scriptures just, you know, I got taken. When you teach verse by verse, you come across things you don't like, you don't want to believe, and you just get nailed. Okay? And the book of James did it for me. Okay? Teaching verse by verse. I shared this. Of, your, of His own will, He begat you by the word of truth. And I'm like, His will? What about my will? Started doing some research. I was like, oh, I guess I'm one of them people I hate. You know? And you can call it a Calvin. You call it whatever you want. I, I just, I think Calvinism is a term that everybody understands. You know, Calvin believed, he taught what Augustine taught from the third century, so you could say I'm Augustinian, you know, whatever. You know, I just believe God is absolutely sovereign, not partial, not three quarters, absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign over the will of man, he's sovereign over every event that ever takes place in time. I'm good with that. That's God. See, that's what makes him God. He controls things. Now, us puny American people don't like that. Donna? Oh, yeah? Really? Donna was at the hospital yesterday reading with mom and talking with mom. Yeah, my mother, she finished uh, her through the Bible reading for this year already and back on, you know, trying to go through it again now for a second time. So, yeah, she's been, uh, <clears throat> she's been faithful to, to be reading. You know, when I became a Christian, um, I was in my 20s, I guess. Early, I was 20, I think. And, uh, you know, came to the Gospel and started reading my Bible, which I've never touched before. Got it off the shelf, dusted the dust off it, had a Bible. Said, God, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, show me who you are. Started with Matthew, you know, and I'm like, all these begats, and it just, you know, I'm like, I almost gave up, you know. But I kept pushing through and started learning, and I found a Bible of my mother's, you know, that she had, and in the beginning, she, she had written in there when she got saved and all this stuff, and I went to her, I was mad, and I had tears in my eyes, I said, why didn't you ever tell me this? You know what? And she was like, "We taught you that when you were younger." I said, "I haven't heard anything like this since I, you know." And so, man, she got back on track, and you know, my whole family kind of got back on track, and it's, you know, it's really good. My dad uh, was down here visiting, went to church with me. Uh, we had a guest speaker who really preached the gospel. My father went forward at the invitation. I was like, "What are you doing? You're Presbyterian." That night, he goes, "Let's go back to church." I'm like, "Dad, you never went back to church." He just and he left and he died that week. But he became a Christian when he was down here. And it was just, man, just incredible. You know, God has worked in our family. And uh, my mother has, uh, you know, walked with the Lord ever since. And, you know, so it's been a good ride. 